Thank you for downloading the IA podcast. The episode you're about to listen to was originally featured as a video on the IA's YouTube channel, IA London. But we've taken the audio and we've turned it into a podcast so that you can listen on the go. Enjoy. Welcome back to Live with Littlewood with me, Mark Littlewood, the Director General of the Institute of Economic Affairs. And what a couple of weeks it's been since we were last on air. If a week's a long time in politics, a fortnight's at least three times as long, surely. It's just over a week or so ago that Russia invaded Ukraine, now a full-scale invasion, and in the intervening period, the Ukrainians have mounted a staunch resistance against Putin's forces. On this episode of Live with Littlewood, the UK's top free market discussion show, we'll be discussing what the West's strategy should be to Russia and Ukraine, what the impacts are going to be here back home, and the impacts indeed right across the world. I've got a stellar lineup of guests to help navigate our way through these dark and troubling times. That's all coming up on this week's episode of Live with Littlewood. Shakalaka, welcome, welcome, welcome to this week's edition of Live with Littlewood with me, Mark Littlewood, the Director General of the IEA. And wow, what a couple of weeks it's been. Just as you think you've put one crisis behind you, another bigger crisis comes along. Of course, the Ukraine is dominating all of the news at the moment, and we'll be analysing various aspects of it uh, with our stellar lineup of guests today. Coming up later on the show, I'll be joined by Emma Webb from Civitas, she'll be here to consider whether companies should be boycotting Russia and whether private boycotts actually are more effective than state sanctions and state action. Our very own Victoria Hewson, Head of Regulatory Affairs here at the IA, will join me to discuss some of the implications for our energy bills and energy policy back home. And GB News' Patrick Christie's will be here and he'll be touching on whether the Ukraine crisis means we need to beef up our, our defence spending. But first up, delighted to be joined by, in person at last, by Helen Dale, writer, lawyer, and according to her Twitter bio, the only classical liberal in Australian literature. Please give a warm welcome to Helen Dale. Hey Helen, great to have you. Good to have you with us. Have a seat. You haven't got a beer. No. You're not really a proper Australian then, are you? you know, and and I've, got, I've, got to, I've got to take you to task. What, what do you mean the only classical liberal in Australian literature? I mean, firstly, you're a real person. You're not in Australian literature. <laughs> that comment was actually made about me in a newspaper article um, many years ago for, in one of the left-leaning papers in, in Australia where I was described as Australian literature's lone classical liberal. And I was always paired with another individual who was not a classical liberal, was a conservative. His name was Les Murray and he's a great Australian poet and was often discussed in the context of being a potential Nobel laureate. And uh, he died re a couple of years ago now, and I am now routinely written about as the only right-winger, uh, right-wing right writer of any renown in Australia because of the awards that I've won okay. for my books. Well, I looked up a bit of Australian fiction, and look, I don't want to downplay your contribution to Australian literature, but I'm going to put you in the top three. I reckon it's you, 
Crocodile Dundee and Mad Max, right? I mean, I'll give you top three. I'll give you top three. Now, you've written uh, about Ukraine's experience under both Soviet and Nazi occupation. Um, I think most people, although it's a bit virtue signaling to say it, I think, are impressed by the staunch resistance the Ukrainians are showing on the ground. Not that I know anything at all about military manoeuvres or foreign policy, but if you like, my best guess was the whole place would collapse in a day or two. They're putting up incredible resistance. Um, tell us a bit about what you've written about in terms of Ukraine's experience and promote your book. Oh, right. Well, this is the book that I wrote that was published in 1994 called The Hand That Signed the Paper. It won the Miles Franklin Award, which is the Australian equivalent of the Booker Prize. It won some other prizes as well, but that's the most important one. It is set almost wholly in Ukraine. And uh, it concerns first the experience of what Ukrainians call the Holodomor, which is the Ukrainian famine. Holodomor means in Ukrainian extermination by starvation. Mm -hmm. And it was a process whereby a combination of forced collectivization, the extermination of the Kulaks as a class, which were ethnically Ukrainian, but in many respects separate from broader currents in Ukrainian society. They were, uh, we would consider them like a model minority or a market dominant minority, but they were actually just very good at farming. Right. They were very good at agriculture and they were good at capitalism. Okay, And they had a strong sense of property ownership and ties to the land. And so you had that going on. The people who are good at capitalism tend to rise to the top in my historical <laughs> experience. And. Uh, because they had quite a strong sense of national identity, Ukrainians generally, and this goes back to the 18th century, the, they were targeted very brutally. And it was the classic forced famine in the sense that all the food was exported out of Ukraine in order to get hard currency. And uh, the, um, it became so bad that you finished up with Ukrainian farmers had their seed grain taken from mm -hmm. them, so that means they couldn't grow crops for the following year. And by that point, Stalin basically didn't care. And we're not really sure of how many people uh, it killed. Uh, the official figure, which was actually announced in the Russian Duma, still when Putin was leader, but some years ago now, is, is a, was 7 million. Uh, people like Anne Applebaum or Timothy Snyder talk about 5 to 7 million. They're not really sure, but it's vast numbers of people. And it was 1932 to 1933. So this all happened in sort of two years. And so first you had that experience, then you had the experience in 1941 of the Nazi invasion, Operation Barbarossa. And the best way you can describe it, and this is part of the story in the hand that signed the paper, is the Ukra many Ukrainians, not all of them, but many Ukrainians looked at this as any port in a storm. Nothing could be mm -hmm. as bad as what the what communists had done experience, to yeah. So you did finish up with quite significant levels, particularly in what we call, consider West Ukraine, of collaboration with the Nazis, sometimes in ways that were extremely destructive and, and, and morally troubling to us. It would have not been possible, for example, for the very small number of Nazi troops to perpetrate the massacre at Babin Yar mm -hmm. if it had not been for heavy involvement of, of okay. Ukrainian locals. Now, one of the reasons I, I deliberately make this clear is this particular background clear, is you have no doubt seen on social media and also it's been a big part of Putin's claim is Ukrainian Nazis, these people are Nazis, they're perpetrating a genocide. Nazis and drug dealers, that seems to be his claim. Oh, that seems to be his thing, well yes, it, physician heal thyself when it comes to the drug dealers part. 
And so that what he's doing is he's claiming that Ukraine has not changed as a country yeah, yeah. since 1941. Now, you need to understand two things here. First, the persecution of, U of Jews in Ukraine, sometimes by Ukrainians, sometimes by Ukrainians themselves or in company with others, is significantly worse and has historically been more destructive and it also predates the Soviet era than anything that was done to black people in the United States. It makes, mm -hmm. it makes the transatlantic slave trade look like a dinky toy. Mm -hmm. You really need to understand this. So in that context, Volodymyr Zelensky himself is Jewish, right? Is Jewish. For Ukrainians to elect a Jew, particularly with the bulk of his support coming from West Ukraine, mm -hmm. which is the area historically where the rates of Nazi collaboration were highest, um, is more significant than the United right. for Ukrainians and a more significant achievement as a culture than it is than it was for the United States to elect Barack Obama. Right. People yeah. need to understand this. Ukraine has moved on. And when Putin is calling them all Nazis and, and fascists and, and we're going to perp they're perpetrating a genocide and so on and so forth, in a sense, in that speech before the invasion, he was arguing with a ghost. Yeah, yeah. He was arguing with a U Ukraine that no longer exists and probably hasn't exist existed for a very long okay. time. So uh, we're, we're going to call this first section open borders, bit provocative, but I'd like your thoughts, Helen, on what we should do from a humanitarian and economic perspective for the civilians in Ukraine. We might touch a little later in the show about security and defence and what we should expect there. Uh, but what should our obligation be to, I guess, any Ukrainian who can make it to Dover or some other port of entry? And here are a few things to, uh, a few numbers and observations to conjure with. Last time I checked the, the figures, barely a thousand Ukrainian refugees have been issued visas to come to Britain. The New York Times today claims the UK system is confounding, a bureaucratic nightmare. Uh, and one person trying to enter the UK described it as inhumane. Uh, so far, Germany's taken in 30,000 refugees. Obviously, the bulk's gone to Poland at the moment. France, 5,000. Spain are set to take 6,000 this week. The French accuse the UK of a lack of humanity after this pretty dismal performance. I will just give a shout-out to my Times article earlier this week. I suggested bring in hundreds of thousands of these Ukrainians. Uh, they'll work hard. They'll be grateful to be here. Is the UK being insufficiently humanitarian and sympathetic here? What should the right approach be? Or is this just the age-old state bureaucracy screwing up again rather than it actually being an, an analysis of public policy here? I think the issue, as it always is with the Home Office, and I say this as someone who comes from a country that is the most multi-ethnic in the world, that's Australia, and probably, I think I can fairly say, has the best run immigration system in the world. And my comment in this case is, when it comes to the Home Office and admitting Ukrainian refugees, is that the spirit is willing and the body is weak. I have said repeatedly in various fora across the political spectrum that my preferred fix for the Home Office is to basically fire the entirety of it into the sun. Apparently, it's more economically, more in, uh, physically efficient to fire it out of the solar system, but fire it out into the sun. It is just monstrously badly run. Leaving that point to one side, and that's what you put the blame on here—that they're just not the bulk processing of it, just things uh, in I mean, any this efficient is an fashion. This is an organisation that would struggle to fund its own backside mm -hmm. with both hands. The Ordnance Survey. 
mm -hmm. and a flashlight. Mm -hmm. It really is just awful, absolutely awful. I do think, I mean, I, I come from a country that quite deliberately and systematically says that some immigrants or refugees are better than others. Um, some of them are more culturally compatible. Some of them are going to be better that, for your country. This is the basis of the Australian immigration system. If you are going to take good immigrants that will be good for Britain, Ukrainians will be it. Mm -hmm. Entrepreneurial, hardworking, uh, linguistically talented because of the, uh, I mean, the, the Ukraina, the name of the country means borderland. Uh, and so frequently you get Ukrainians who can, they can speak Russian, they can speak Polish, they can speak German in addition to their mother tongue. And so they've got that flair for foreign languages, which is, tends to make people good immigrants yeah. as, as well. So that's fascinating because I made the assertion, but you're, you're in my uh, Times article earlier this week, it seems to me the immigration debate here in the UK has been, if you like, opponents of a liberal immigration policy raised three things, and I don't think that liberal-minded people should dismiss them. Uh, the first is there'll be a burden on public services. This is going um, to happen with any immigration, I'm afraid. The second is won't assimilate into a British way of life. That's a bit vague, we can get it. And the third is we'll have a downward pressure on the wages of the indigenous population. My rough take on it for Ukraine is almost, if you like, none of those apply. The first on drain on public services, well, we could divine the visa and the welfare benefits to build that in, whatever. You might only be entitled to things when you paid a certain level of tax. British way of life, I was very confident on cultural assimilation not really being a problem. And in the labour market, our problem is shortages, not an excess of labour. If you were going to have a large group of immigrants from a country that were not going to cause any problems at all, with the possible exception of the first one, for the simple reason that you just have more people calling on the same level of services and that's just inevitable you can't help that then ukrainians would be it yeah, these that's are ideal these are ideal immigrants in in every respect uh, you are getting people who who bring talent who don't who have overcome their historic problem that they're, they're you know I, I accept the conservative division of civilization and barbarism you know this is a country that has overcome the barbarism in its terrible history i mean the historian Timothy Snyder makes the point that between 1932 and 1945, Ukraine was the most dangerous place on earth. Mm -hmm. You were most likely to die if, if you, you know, sort of buy the Doctor Who kind of get a TARDIS. If you wanted to kill someone, you deposit that person in, in Ukraine, Ukraine in the 30s. between 1933 and 1945 and leave him there mm -hmm. and you've got a very good chance of him dying. So. Wow. Well, the other thing here, and again, tell us a bit more about this. I dug up the numbers. I was uh, quite surprised by some of these. It's estimated at the moment that there are 31,000 people who are born in the Ukraine who are in the United Kingdom. Uh, I think that's per permanent residents. The Prime Minister and the Home Secretary indicated, I'm not quite sure where they get this number from, but they will take about 200,000. I'm not quite sure why you cap it there. Or uh, uh, this, this number staggered me. Two-thirds of all seasonal work visas accepted by the British government in 2021 went to Ukrainians. Mm. Two-thirds were Ukrainians. And if you were to look at work visas <coughs> overall, that's seasonal work visas, the, uh, Ukraine produced the second highest number of successful applications mm. behind only India, mm. which has a population 20 times as big. So there's already quite a Ukrainian diaspora here in mm. the UK, right? Yes. Um, and also, to be fair, this is the, has been the experience of Australia because of the country. I mean, Ukraine is, like Australia, a vast wheat-producing 
nation. The, the flag is literally the, gold, uh, the golden wheat and the blue sky. That's what it means. I mean, it's also the colours of Sweden because of historic links between Sweden and Southampton and FC's away kit. I oh, very, oh yeah. very, there you go. <laughs> but it's... Um, so, uh, so there, is, there are historic links to Sweden, but also it's meant to be geographically symbolic. Uh, the thing that Ukrainians excel at and have done for centuries, and one of the reasons they were picked on, is because they're just really good at agriculture. If you want to do something for British farming... And that would explain the seasonal workers, yes. in large part, I'm guessing. So you, you would take a pretty liberal approach Very to much. more and more... Than I mean, uh, I'm, I'm, but I remember I'm coming out of an Australian tradition that says, no, those ones are more likely to be benefits recipients or terrorists, we don't want them. These ones are likely like to... Work and pay tax. Work, work, pay tax, and right. contribute to the country. Okay. Helen, stay with us, but I want to bring in uh, our second guest now to consider this issue and move on to sanctions and what uh, Western companies are doing in Russia. Increasingly little, it has to be <coughs> said. So please give a very warm welcome to Patrick Christie's from GB News. Good to see you, my friend. And you, Thanks and for you, joining us. You haven't got a beer either. I've got. No, I've got I'm all right. Actually, you're right. Donkey, yeah, cheers, He's cheers. drinking all the beers. <laughs> I'm drinking all the beers. I'm drinking all the beers. So, Patrick, let me just start before we move on to yeah. sort of what sanctions and companies are doing, what we need to do about defence and security and the rest of it. Yeah. What's your take on this immigration issue? I mean, the, everybody, the, some of the media I've done, they've been quite surprised. They say, yeah. oh, you know, we thought you were a right winger, Mark. But I'm a wet pinko liberal on quite a lot of stuff. On all the things you yeah. should be a wet pinko liberal on. Yeah. I, I think this could be win-win. We could do the humanitarian thing and cure the labour shortage. The particular point I, uh, I, I raised, we had a tube strike in London last week. Yeah. Our tube driver's base pay £55,000. Yeah. Been driving a tube in, 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 in Keys, it'd be £7,000. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. So this is win-win-win, isn't it? Why well, yeah, we haven't already lost, 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 you see, is the problem. Because I think for far too long in this country now, there's a lot of people who must have a huge amount of egg on their face. Um, and that is because we've welcomed in a lot of people for £4.6 million a day, may I add, who are, many of them, just illegal. Many of them have absolutely no assimilation or desire to assimilate whatsoever in this country. What's the 4.6 million a day? 4.6 million a day is the accommodation cost that it takes right. for everyone who's come over the channel plus our normal asylum mm -hmm. procedure as well. Mm -hmm. Bear in mind that what's happened in the last year or so in the channel, we've not sent a single person back who's been who's come across over the channel. And there have been vast numbers there, record levels of people there in hotels, in accommodation, draining resources. The food costs alone are absolutely monumental. I mean, Domino's doesn't come cheap, as we all know. And so, if you now look at a situation where you have a group of people who, as Helen rightly said, and I think we can all agree really, share a much more similar culture. You could argue have much more of a desire to integrate into this country, yeah, certainly better linguistically. And again, I think a bit of that does come down to desire, frankly, having grown up a bit around the, uh, the Curry Mile area of Manchester. Lots of people that were born here who had children here as well mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and, and really did never even bother to speak English at home, for example. Um, and now it's a question of whether or not we do have the entirety of the resources if we had not been such a soft touch for such a long time would we now be in a better position to accept some people who you cannot argue are are, are in a, a in a much needier situation i would also like to point out as well that uh, I spoke to the former head of Border Force in Calais this morning on my show, and he said that there was a boat that arrived two days ago that was just full of young men. Mm. Now, what's going on in Ukraine? 
the women and children are leaving and the men are taking up arms. And, and the men are actually not allowed to leave. I mean, yeah, I don't well, know yeah, how much well, that sticks. That's but, true. Yeah. But, no, no, but, it does but, stick. Right. I, can, I can tell but, you that mm. in, the, in the context of, if you, if you want to go right into a cultural wars issue, there are a few transgender no, yeah. male, right, right. females in Ukraine and they attempted to leave with the women and children and the Ukrainian right. government said, basically, so, go so back. So it is the women and children generally leaving. The women and children are leaving. The men are staying and fighting. Okay, fine, there may be some people there. I'm sure there are some people there who would love to leave who are forced not to. And I, you know, I don't condone anyone getting trapped in a war zone, right? Yeah, I'm not yeah. saying that. But what I am saying is there's clearly a huge number of Ukrainian men who want to stay, fight, and potentially die for the sake of their national sovereignty and their country in a way, frankly, that we have not seen in a lot of other countries where we now have boatloads of people coming over that's almost entirely men. Ukrainian yeah. pa patriotism has shown your nationalism you get in Russia and Ukraine, looking at them, the good nationalism and the bad nationalism. Oh. Volodymyr Zelensky and the Ukrainian people love their country because it is theirs. Not because they think it's better than everybody mm -hmm. else's mm -hmm. country. Vladimir Putin loves Russia because he thinks it's better than everybody mm -hmm. else. Mm -hmm. And that, that's that, that there, in, the nut in a nutshell, is the difference between good civic nationalism yeah. and bad imperial nationalism. Yeah. I mean, I don't like, all, uh, you see all this sort of silly theory from political theorists that doesn't actually get to the nub of the issue, is are you one of these people who thinks your country's just totally marvellous mm. and gets to step all over everybody else? Well, no, that's the bad nationalism. Are yeah. you someone who loves your country, who is loyal to it, who, who mm. is loyal to a sense of place, you know, sure. Oikophilia rather than oikophobia, that kind but of thing. It's, that is the good nationalism. And, and it's also a sense as well of people, whether or not they may be willing to go back. I'm not saying that you know, we should be sending, well, I'm saying that we should send some people back, but to be fair, but um, when it comes to Ukrainians, if you have left out of absolute necessity as a, a woman and child, and your husband or partner or whatever is there fighting for that country, once that war is over, and fingers crossed, touch wood, they're successful in that pursuit, then you go back. Right? So this notion now, a lot of the idea that well, we'll take a load of Ukrainian refugees, 200,000, whatever, you know, throw a number at the wall and see what sticks. The fact is, reality is, it's, as long as they can maybe be successful in that pursuit, then it's not going to be a permanent yeah, measure. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And that is a big yeah. thing for a lot of people. I do think people need to understand, you will get some Ukrainians leave and settle in your country. Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. Many happen, uh, the, the country that took huge numbers of Ukrainians after World War II was Canada. They're actually the largest ethnic minority for many, many years. Australia took quite a few, but Canada took the bulk I'd of them. I'd probably rather be in Kiev than Canada these days, to be fair. But. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not, well, and, the, the, and the thing is, so that you're dealing with people who, um, they do love their country and you need to be careful, and I see it amongst a, a lot of libertarians who, who clearly spent school being netty nomads and unable to catch a cold, who just think, oh, we'll let them all in and they'll all stay. Yeah. And have you not considered yeah. that they yeah. might actually yeah. love their country and want to go back? Sure. And you should try to help them. And there's that. an arrogance about that, isn't there? Well, once oh, there they, is. Oh, once they've got here, I mean, goodness yeah. sake, you know, why would you ever want to leave? And I can imagine that. I mean, you know, heaven forbid, I hope it never happens, but, you know, one can imagine the circumstances in which we might need to flee the United Kingdom course, for some yeah. reason. But if peace returned, I, I think I'd almost certainly want to come back. Yes. Listen, guys, I want to move on to our, our next topic, and that's about how the West is reacting economically, but particularly the private sector. We're, we're calling this section Go West, and we're asking about do companies have a moral obligation to help stop Russian aggression? There's been a lot of focus on state sanctions, but uh, and Western governments are imposing quite strict uh, state sanctions, but... Here's a list of a few things private companies have done. 
you might argue how voluntary it's been or whether they feel they're caught up in this way. Netflix has shut its operations in Russia. No new customers able to sign up. Chinese-owned TikTok has suspended live streaming in the face of Russia's new fake news rules. The Chinese are boycotting Russia or Chinese companies. Amazon has banned the selling of T-shirts with the pro-Russian Z insignia. Other major companies halting or reducing activity in Russia include Ford, Renault, Ferrari, not totally sure how many Russians buy Ferraris, Shell, BP, Mastercard and Visa, Google, Boeing, Airbnb, Coca-Cola, PepsiCo, Unilever, Papa John's, Adidas, Nike, Carlsberg, Ikea and Disney. Um, Helen, what do you make of it? I've never seen the like of this. Usually I'm used to sort of sanctions being imposed by the government, private companies, you know, continuing on uh, if they are able to do so. I think that was roughly the case with South African sanctions. Yeah. This is a pullout of virtually everything, my apparently on the face of it, by um, free market mechanisms. My instinct initially, particularly with some of the quite unpleasant cultural sanctions we've seen directed at Russian musicians and sports people, is the parallel with South Africa. And it is true that the sanctions eventually contributed to the breaking of mm. South Africa, but it took a very long time. What we are seeing here is the application of the tools of cancel culture, take that how you like, mm. being applied to a sovereign nation. Russia is being cancelled. If it weren't for silly net zero policies and Germany closing its nuclear plants, Russia would be on its uppers now. I mean, you have got a situation where nobody's credit cards work, people can't pay their utilities bills. I, I saw some comments from some of my military strategist friends saying, oh, the Russians are going to roll out an equivalent of SWIFT. And I just sat there sitting there thinking, you lot might know a lot about tanks and anti-aircraft guns, but you've clearly never been in an office that's sure. had an IT rollout. You have no idea how badly this is going to go wrong. So some of what you saw with Trudeau's treatment of the truckers in Canada, you're seeing that instead of being done to a protest group, and I thought it was deeply improper when it was done there, some of what is happening now is you are seeing those tools applied to an entire country, and it is quite astonishing. I haven't fully formed my view of it because it is so astonishing. Yeah. But, but the, the, Patrick, what's your take on this? Like, I, I'm a bit betwixt and between, yeah, but yeah. on the one hand, I'm kind of thinking this is more significant than whatever's passed in the House of Commons about you know seizing someone's yacht. We're yeah. pulling out the entirety of the capitalist infrastructure from Russia. You might argue whether that's proportional or disproportional, but surely it will have effect. Well, they didn't have a choice. Once you start taking virtue signalling approaches to things like Black Lives Matter or uh, trans issues, for example, well, I'm sorry, but you know, once Vladimir Putin invades a sovereign nation, you have to do something about that as well. Mm -hmm. And yeah. you know, I, I can only imagine that if Vladimir Putin, frankly, had bombed an LGBT HQ in Kiev first, McDonald's would have pulled out a week earlier. They have decided to at least operate in a fry zone, haven't they? Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. Very <laughs> <laughs> But um, they've had enough of Putin's Big Mac and lies. I'll stop it now. <laughs> I'll stop it. Right. But seriously, though, they, they've, they've backed themselves bang into a corner here. You cannot take the knee on mass and then watch him. He blew up a maternity ward today. As far as, well, according to reports, anyway, Zelensky's come out and said there's about 300 babies uh, currently believed to be under some rubble. Well, mm -hmm. I'm sorry, but if you're going to continue to sell them quarter pounders for that, yeah. but you're going to take the moral high ground about Black Lives Matter, then you've got massive problems. One thing I do say, though, is I think 
think is absolutely pointless elements to it. They've banned Tchaikovsky in Wales, apparently. This is the stupid South African style sanctions, and mm. I'll be honest. Wait, Paul, what do you mean they banned it? You like, can't play. Like like apparently, Tchaikovsky's not allowed to be played. But it's a little bit like banning solid defending Everton. They've done it themselves years ago. So it doesn't really make much of a difference. But I am concerned about the potential for xenophobia in this. There was a report that came out, and I read it, and literally as I was walking down the road on the way in here now, which is that in America now, apparently there are various Russian restaurants, and indeed I'm trying to interview one tomorrow on my show, uh, who are having cancellations, this, that, and the other. Now, it jury's out on how many Russian staff they even have. The chef's probably not even Russian, for goodness sake. Yeah. It just cooks Russian food. And I'm, I'm, conf I'm concerned about whether or not this is going to spill over. Bear in mind when Trump called it the China virus, and we go, goodness me, this is going to incite acts of violence against the Chinese. Well, as far as I was aware, there weren't any. But actually, we're looking at this now, and if we're starting to cancel ordinary Russian people, yeah. then I've got a problem. And also, the great achievements, and Konstantin Kizan has been very good on this, Russian culture, particularly in the areas of music and literature, is part of the patrimony of human civilization. It is a gift to the human race. You know, Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, Solzhenitsyn, Tchaikovsky, Prokofiev. You know, I could just sit here all day listing marvelous Russian writers and musicians. Yeah. The only literature that can challenge English, the, the literature of the English-speaking peoples, as the as a great as the greatest literature, is that of Russian mm -hmm. literature. It is, I mean, I saw that Italian university cancelling their Dostoevsky course when here was a man who warned against, in his books, against exactly the kind of mad, yeah. uh, nihilistic view of the world and the destruction of culture in, in his books. So do you think, yeah. uh, following on from Patrick's point mm. about the, you know, the Russian restaurateur or whatever, um, I was picked up on this and I kind of, you know I, know, I know in the modern world you've got to kind of watch your P's and Q's and your language incredibly, but I thought I was correctly picked up on this, that when I was discussing our, our relationship with the Chinese regime, I would just talk about the Chinese and somebody actually said, no, no, distinguish between the Chinese and the Chinese Communist Party. Yes. And I think the same distinction is important in the Russia debate, right? We're mm. trying to distinguish between Putin's and lieutenants his and his cronies and the Russians in general, many of whom hate him. And do you think we're just allowing that sort of slightly well, sloppy approach that, I mean, you, we were told, sort of, you know, London's awash with Russian money. Well, that per se doesn't trouble me. It troubles me if it's awash with Putin's money. Yes. Um, but Russia, I, I, we're sort of assuming well, if you're Russian, you're guilty, and if you're Russian and rich, you're definitely guilty. Well, when I looked this up before I got here, and there is currently no Russian nationals playing in the Premier League, and that would have been a very good litmus test to yep. where we are, because when we invaded the Falklands, it was Ozzy Diaz, mm -hmm. of course, who was booed round. This geezer had absolutely nothing to do with what was going on in the Falklands, yep. uh, and, and I think that would have been a very good litmus test, as I've said. I, I, would, I would pick up as well on where we stand. I'm concerned that this is just a fad at the moment. It's the latest bandwagon to jump on. You know, now do China then. China has absolutely crippled the world with the coronavirus, which I think, look, I'll go out and say it, I think it came from a lab, whether it was deliberately released or not is another question, but it did. It then didn't tell the world about it, and it's brought us to our, to our knees to an extent. Well, and also the genocide of the Uyghur Muslims, and just a fundamental lack of human rights. You take your pick when it comes to China. The posturing with Taiwan, you know, hang on a minute, are we going to impose sanctions on China as well? Are we going to go around the same thing? That if there was a Chinese driver in F1, would he be out on his backside? Mm -hmm. You know, we need to start thinking about this. We can't have it one way and not the other. Yeah. Um, I'm going to ask our next guest to, to join us, so shuffle up a little bit, Patrick. Come, come get, clo uh, get closer to ask her <laughs> thoughts. And this is a delighted to welcome to the show political commentator Emma Webb. Emma, lovely to have you with us. Thanks for coming. Thanks for coming. Have a seat. Have a seat. Um, 
Emma, what's your take on this? Because I can't make my mind up. I, I, I didn't know what Patrick and Helen's views would be, but I can't decide whether I'm sort of punching the air that all these free market capitalist countries are just sort of doing the right moral thing and saying we don't... Or whether... OK, I'm inferring a bit from what Patrick and said, whether this is just a kind of another form of wokery. What's your take? I think it's a really interesting point, actually, the way that you put it, Helen, that they're employing the tools of cancel culture to essentially cancel a country, which is an interesting sort of application in a way of free market principles to sanctions. And like you say, it's something that's completely unprecedented. And it's, it's really probably going to have a bigger impact than the sanctions that are coming from our governments, particularly um, in terms of, you know... The, surrounding oil and gas because that's obviously not something that seems to Just be going context, particularly far. If you can't pay your utilities bills or feed yourself in Moscow at the end of February or the beginning of March, particularly as they're, they're getting a beast, there's a beast from the east coming in on Ukraine and Russia at the moment, mm. you stand a very, very good chance of just being frozen in your apartment. If that's what I'm trying to get a handle on. People forget how serious the climate is there, mm. your general winter I've and general I've never visited. Uh, Russia. I've never been to Moscow or any of the other Russian, no, no part of Russia. But it seems to me this, I mean, this must be catastrophic for the economy there. I mean, just functionality. It's not just a question of Russian GDP has fallen by, you know, 15.7%. Kept... It's, it's presumably just... barely functional now. Well, the, the stock market is closed. And the joke that I saw on Twitter, and but which is actually true, is that... Uh, Dogecoin is now worth far more, and that's a joke cryptocurrency, by the way, for those who aren't into crypto. Dogecoin is now worth far more than the ruble, which has yeah, reached yeah. Weimar levels of hyperinflation, basically. And, uh, yeah, I mean, somebody said to me, what's the, what's the difference between a dollar and a ruble? About a dollar. So, Emma, you're worried about this. This is, this is cancel culture against a nation. You say, I can't make my mind up, because I think that... Mm. You, you can act in the free market to signal mm -hmm. things without it necessarily yeah. being wokery. You know, I'm not, I'm not I you know, I, I think I probably do want my com the companies that I'm a customer of, all things equal, not to be investing in pariah states, yeah, right, or I helping Putin's tax revenue. It might not be top of mind when I'm buying a pizza or a can of Coke, but it, it sort of weighs with me a bit. So this might just be responding to a customer base. Huh? Yeah, I mean, I haven't made my mind up about this either, and I, I don't know how concerned I am about it, but I do think that there is something in this that is particularly interesting in that these are companies that are essentially making decisions about their own you know, on, on the basis of reputational risk, as they did with um, pressure from activist movements, whether it was over mm. Black Lives Matter yep. or if it's to do with you know LGBTQ activism or anything like that. And so I think that in, on the one hand, they're making a cynical decision to protect their own reputation. But the problem is, and um, I was just having a conversation with your very own Mark Glendening about this, um, which is that there, it, it seems to be this kind of anti-intellectualism that, that comes from woke politics that is leaking into the mainstream in a very worrying way so we then see that whilst it's being you know from a reputational perspective employed by these companies to um, respond to Russia you also see that you have for example the Cardiff Philharmonic mm. trying to pr presumably protect their own reputation by thinking that it's the right thing to do to cancel Tchaikovsky or Milan University to cancel Dostoevsky and I think that that is part of the same phenomenon and it you know, they, they might be one and the same and certain aspects of it might be beneficial in a strategic sense with relation to Russia, but on the other hand, uh, are actually quite worrying. But that's surely nuts, right? I, I think I can distinguish between a company that is making profits here and now 
in Moscow by selling hamburgers or selling digital subscriptions to Netflix and playing classical music that isn't even in copyright. Don't you think, Badger? That, that, yeah. those, are, those are two totally different things that one could say, oh, I don't really like being a, sh yeah. a shareholder in a company that's doing millions of pounds worth of business in Moscow. Yeah. But to leap from that to say, well, you know, Tolstoy yeah, is not going to be on sale in Waterstones anymore. That's it's madness. madness. And I, it is this, it is a new tool. People don't really know how to use it. I'm right. in the process of writing a piece on aspects of this for, for Law and Liberty, which is the magazine where I'm a senior writer, because I haven't worked it through yet. And I need to do some very careful thought about this, because this is a new and terrible tool that we have. Yeah. And we don't fully understand this new and terrible tool that we have. And as a, I mean, I'm currently tutoring a Ukrainian refugee via Zoom three times a week. She's in Vilnius. And it's just, even she has made the point, she said this is just a thing of terror mm -hmm. that she had not expected and had not appreciated where, um, yeah. where so it was going to be. There is, you, am I right to spot this difference or am I trying to have my cake and eat it? That it's one thing to kind of put, I don't know, an LGBT yeah, yeah. ribbon in Gay Pride Week on yeah. your Twitter feed. It, it, it's rather different to say we're going to pull out of our entire Russia operation, which is worth hundreds of yeah, millions of pounds think, a year. Or but I think they've put themselves in this position, right? Because I, and I think if there's some good to come out of this, they might just stop all that nonsense now. Carlsberg, I, think, I don't know if I've said this on your show before, now every time apparently you buy a pint of Carlsberg, they plant some seagrass. No bloke has ever walked up to a bar <laughs> and gone, oh, goodness me, which beer do I want? Well, that, if I buy a Carlsberg, right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to plant some seagrass. seagrass. No one gives a toss, right? And so, actually, now if you're doing that and you're building your entire company's model and virtue signaling, your advertising campaigns, etc., around you being this morally, uh, you know, uh, morally good uh, bastion of light in an otherwise dark and bleak existence, then actually, when Putin does roll the tanks in, you have to do something about it. Now, they may realise at the end of this, actually, we wish that we hadn't necessarily done that because it's damaged us massively or, or, or for whatever reason. Well, then stop the other stuff, right? Stop the other stuff. Um, I don't know. I don't know where this is going to lead. I think we, we have got this new and terrible tool and we don't know how to use it. And we are seeing it being deployed against a country for the first time in a way that sort of resembles the, uh, the what was done to South Africa with the cultural sanctions, yeah. but is also very, very new. And... Well, is worse than but anything I, I, we I, I, to, I, I to, to Russia this, in the this might be the, anything. The, this might be the market in operation, right? To, to Patrick's point, which I think you have mentioned on live a little before, mm. Patrick. And it's now imprinted in my mind, I will never buy a pint of cold no. milk again, because that is a ridiculous care less thing. So yeah. I'm going to exercise my market power <laughs> in, in that direction. I'll, I'll stick on any yeah. brand of lot. Yeah. I don't want any seagrass. No, no seagrass. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm totally against that. Uh, Emma, um, your take on this in, in, in terms of the culture wars. So here's Milton Friedman's doctrine. He says, insofar as a business executive's actions are in accord with his social responsibility, insofar as that reduces return to stockholders, he is spending their money. Insofar as his actions raise the price to customers, he is spending the customer's money. Insofar as his actions lower the wages of some employees, he is spending their money. Do you think Freedom's Doctrine's right? And if you're making pizza, just make pizza and sell it. If you're making 
beer, just make beer and sell it. Don't have a mm-hmm. sideline in the seagrass industry yeah. or a view about <laughs> you know transgenderism or indeed Russia. Immigration. Or even immigration. Yeah, Ben and Jerry's. Yeah, Jerry's. Yeah, no, Jerry, no, um, should we say, you know, stick to your lane if you're an ice cream mm-hmm. manufacturer and make ice cream? Or should we be a bit more sort of, well, I guess if you want to make ice cream that appeals to left-wing people, <laughs> Ben and Jerry's, I guess, is that, right? That you will not only just taste the ice cream, you'll sort of have a, you know, slightly pompous Islington-esque feeling of moral superiority as you're eating it. You'll have the I guess that's effect a, around what you're eating. That's, a, that's, a, that's a market proposition there, isn't it? Like fair trade products would be another example. I don't think anyone at the IEA has ever yeah. opposed that. You want to buy them, you can buy them. If you don't want to buy them, don't buy them. What do you yeah, I think, I mean, I think on the one hand, um, the British public in general, I assume, anecdotally, do just want to be, you know, they want their ice cream makers to make ice cream and sell them ice cream. They don't want to be constantly preached at by all of these companies who Mm -hmm. have all of these different popular agendas. On the other hand, you have to ask yourself why these companies are doing it. Are they doing it because they actually want to be socially responsible? Is it because they care about seagrass or is it because they think seagrass is actually going to sell them more beers? They might be wrong in that assumption, but if you look at companies like, for example, Chocolate Only is a fantastic example of this because they have made a whole uh, shtick out of their anti-slavery. From the very, very beginning, they they were a chocolate company that was there to criticise other chocolate companies. And they've been caught up in all sorts of scandals themselves, including having having slavery in their own supply chains. and planning to <laughs> planning and working with companies that uh, produce the chocolate that plan to eliminate slavery um, by a certain date. I can't remember exactly which one it is, but it's in the future. So they an aspiration to exactly. abolish slavery. Yeah, um, nice. And and their reasoning behind that is that they say that they're working with these big uh, other big chocolate companies within the industry so that they can almost be in dialogue with them, so they can criticise well, That's them. a fair play, but that's but a market but proposition. But because this company, I mean I'm using it as, as an example that I think it, you know can be compared with other companies as well like Ben & Jerry's, that they, this company particularly from the very beginning was using its social consciousness as a marketing tool. And I think that's what many of these companies do view, particularly mm. on the culture war side of things or, or you know, involving themselves in particular activist causes. They view this as a way to market their product right. and to reduce their reputational risk. I think it's a cynical move on their part. Yeah. And in that sense, they are taking part within uh, within the market, they're just doing it in a way that you know perhaps the British public don't agree with, and it might turn them off from buying their products. But ultimately, you would hope that long term people will vote with their mm-hmm. wallets and just yeah. not buy those products. Just, just quickly, I got absolutely and very weirdly smashed by Ryanair on Twitter twice, uh, at, completely <laughs> out of the blue. In a way, I can only this is a new culture war. Christie's versus Ryanair. Ryanair versus Christie's. I can only assume it was around the Ryanair Christmas party. But um, they called me quote say pound shop Piers Morgan. Now, I calculated that if I was indeed a pound shop Piers Morgan, I'd still be a multi millionaire. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually all right with that. I don't think it was insulting. Take that one, yeah. But you know, I'll they're, they're a budget airline, right? And so, you know, by definition, it's about convenience and this, that, and the other. And, and, and the case in point about people not caring about who they fly with was it was it Emma Thompson who flew first class, yeah. business class with BA in order to complain about, in order to complain about the environment. Yeah, yeah. So the airline industry is picking the wrong battle, I think, yeah. when it comes to yeah. that. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Listen, panel, we've, we've basically sorted out the refugee crisis and the future of Western capitalism. Uh, if you're in 
enjoying the show, please make sure you hit the like thumbs up. If you're not yet subscribed to the IEA London YouTube channel, please hit that red subscribe bar and also hit the notification bell. That way you'll be kept up to date with all IEA London YouTube output. We've got tons of stuff coming out uh, every week. Leave a comment and if you've got a few pounds spare, I mean, I know that's quite an ask with the cost of living crisis, do consider becoming an IEA online patron. You can help us keep the lights on and our video output rolling out uh, for as little as £5 a month. Details are in the show notes below. But I now want to move on to the third topic, given we've cracked the humanitarian crisis, the future of Western capitalism. We're calling this under pressure. And this is about defence spending. Now, uh, the IEA is not a foreign affairs or security think tank, but we are interested in spending. And, of course, what we've seen is this crisis has brought to uh, the attention of a number of governments, not least Germany, that, and I hesitate to say, Donald Trump may well have been right. He was banging the drum, saying, if you want to be part of NATO, pony up, pay, uh, spend 2%. Uh, here are a few figures to conjure with. 2% is supposed to be the minimum, by the way, as a GDP uh, commitment as a member of NATO. The US, UK defence spending is a little over 2%, I'm told, but questionable how it's measured. France, 2.07% just over the line. Uh, Germany 1.5% Patrick, uh, but that is a huge planned increase. Spain 1.4%, USA 3.4% mm. and of a much bigger GDP as well. Um, Patrick, what do you think? Should we, you know, now embrace this 2% target or maybe even make it higher? I mean, defence of the realm is one of the key purposes of the state. Well, it is. One of the only purposes of the state, well, in my eyes. Well, it is. And we've been overtaken by events in this argument. For me, there can be very little arguments about it. We were about to slash 10,000 troops, right, which would have brought us to our lowest armed forces level since 1714, which I think, given what's going on right now, is absolutely bonkers. In the 1950s, our our potential GDP, apparently, from what I've seen anyway, on our national defence was 8%. Now, mm -hmm. as you've rightly pointed, it's, it's a little over 2%. Now, we've put a lot of, of stake in nuclear, obviously, and mm -hmm. things like drones, and these tend to be very, very expensive exercises. But if you speak to people like Tobias Alwood or various other figures who've had you know, vast amounts of military experience, we're potentially about to be pushed and pulled all over the world at the moment. China can have a bang on Taiwan any time it likes. Africa is a hotbed of kind of soft war. The Middle East is not a bastion of peace. And so actually, we may well need to have physical conventional troops or some form of all over the world and now is not the time to reduce that i would have an issue or a concern potentially about exactly how we may well go and recruit some of these troops going forward mm -hmm. i am very concerned about the fact that we talk this country down a lot i think that we uh, have eaten ourselves apart and things like the flag burning outside of pimlico school for example where are these recruits coming from we run an advertising mm -hmm. campaign for the military and apparently apparently it was one of the most successful advertising campaigns so you know but that advertising campaign involved us stopping during battle so someone could attend the call to prayer now i'm sorry but that's not going to happen in reality yeah. what pond are we fishing in now Yes, I think defence spending is too low and it needs to be increased. And I think that there is something we can, and, and this is a bit cynical, but I used to be an advertising copywriter and advertising copywriters are the most cynical people on the earth or even more cynical <laughs> than lawyers and I used to be a lawyer. Um, <laughs> you can, this is one where you can say, look, point at Volodymyr Zelensky and point at Ukraine and go, be more them. Be more like that. What you are seeing in that country and the way its soldiers and the way it is conducting itself and the way Zelensky is personally conducting himself is the very best mm -hmm. of patriotism. Yeah. Be more them. Yeah, I agree. 
Yeah, Emma, what do you think? So I've got some of the statistics here. Patrick, you're quite right. I'm not sure I'd ever... Oh. So 1963, defence spending in Britain as a proportion of GDP, you've got to underline that, was 7%. Fell to just over 5% in 1970. 3% by 1997, and it has hovered between yeah. 2 and 3% ever since. At the same time, spending on the NHS has uh, increased yeah. from 3% of GDP yeah. in 1962 to over 7% in 2019 and over 10% in 2020. So we've kind of decided by accident or by design, right, that we care more about healthcare than defence, and, and yeah. that's been the trajectory. Emma, should we have a target here? Again, because let, let me play the pure libertarian. I don't like government percentage targets. Mm -hmm. I clearly want the UK to be defended, but the idea that that's 2% of GDP and foreign aid is 0.7% and refuse collection is 0.01%, that seems to be a very mm -hmm. odd way of doing it. I think as with the NHS and education, it's not just about how much you spend, and I do agree that it should, I think it should be a priority, always, because I think, as you say, Mark, that, you know, defence spending is, is something that should be a priority of the state because it's one of its primary purposes, is to protect its territory and its citizens. Um, but I think in addition to spending more, we also need to be conscious of how that money is spent. So there's no point in spending more on the armed forces if they continue to do things like taking time off for diversity workshops instead of doing the sorts of things that they ought to be doing, right? More so money for critical race theory exactly. courses. Yeah, yeah, we don't, yeah. we don't no, I expect them to be doing yobs around the yeah. brick and pickers. <laughs> Thank you, yes. that is your job. Exactly. I think, that this is ex I think that we should be spending money and spending money properly and, in and insisting that it is being spent on, you know, Mm. No, none of none of these diversity workshops, but on in, on making sure that our troops are properly trained and that they are spending every single working hour doing the sorts of things no. that make this country actually safer. Um, so, you know, I think that, like I say, as with as with education, Scotland is a good example of this. Spending goes up, quality goes down. Um, it isn't just about setting particular targets. That said, I do think that we, we ought to be uh, trying to spend more money because I think even having a target signals to, and, and we do have very real enemies, this is something that Lionel Shriver said that we're now waking up to the fact that there is actual badness yeah. in the world rather than all of this fake badness Dumb, that yeah. we're all so exactly. conscious always about trying to exercise. Like, historic like, badness. Like yeah. Nicola yeah. Sturgeon apologising for witches, uh, for witches well, apologising yeah. to the witches even, <laughs> not just <laughs> for them. Um, and I think, yeah, I think that that it's it's important that we have spending targets. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Quite. I think it's important that we signal through, you know, no more of this narcissistic navel gazing as a culture, in, not just in North America, but also in Europe. But also, I think it's important that we have those spending targets so that we can signal to China and Russia to the actual balance. Okay, but can we agree on this? Let me tell you, sorry, I'm being, a, I'm being a pedantic economist here. But the target, in my view, should be raw cash, not a percentage mm. of GDP. If our GDP doubles next year, it's not obvious to me that we need twice as much security mm -hmm. to prevent, uh, you know, to stop Putin. And similarly, if our GDP halves, it's not obvious to me that we need half as much security to uh, tackle the Russia thing. So it should be a kind of per capita commitment. Uh, so your concern is with the target becoming a measurement in itself and they're therefore ceasing and to And just like the DFID yes. budget, you just start spending it to prove you're spending it, mm -hmm. right? And, and I, I would much rather say, I can't do the maths in my head immediately of what 2% of GDP is, but say, actually we're com committed to this sterling amount in real terms, mm -hmm. irrespective of whether the economy grows or falls. If we're twice as rich, we don't necessarily need twice as much security. All I agreed think, on that? I think that makes that sense. Makes and sense. also that we mm -hmm. should have the, op we should have the 
possibility there to increase defence spending if, you know, if there are particular threats or whatever, that it shouldn't just be, you know, as you were saying, like hard cash. We shouldn't just have to stick to it. We yeah. should be able to go above it, but it should be at least a minimum. Sure. Uh, Helen, I know you need to leave us very shortly, so thank you very much for joining us on this edition of Live with Littlewood. Uh, but I know if you want to see the human face of the conflict in Ukraine, we're going to uh, play a short uh, promo from a video film today on the Polish-Ukrainian border with my colleague and former policy advisor Alex Hammond, who's still a fellow here at the Institute of Economic Affairs. He's working with refugees on the border and he's interviewing Natalia Melnik, the director of the Bendo Kidzi Free Market Centre. So uh, I hope this promo gives you a sense of what's really happening there. We are pushing campaigns, uh, forward campaigns, uh, you know, to keep providing us with assistance, uh, to keep providing us with a chance to defend ourselves, right? We don't want other people fighting our fights, but we need a chance to survive. And uh, a lot of it has to do with the weapons made available to us. That's why we are begging for, uh, for someone to close the sky because Russian um, Air Force is a, is a very big threat. They are the ones doing the most damage. They're the most difficult to deal with. And that's where we are overpowered. Uh, and if, if, you know, uh, we understand that the, the countries are not willing to do that because they are afraid of, you know, uh, that this will be like a direct uh, confrontation with Russia. But Putin already said that even the sanctions are like a sign of war yeah, against Russia. War. Obviously, we wish uh, Natalia all the very best. We hope her team are as safe as possible and can be back in Kyiv as soon as possible. If you want to support Alexander Hammond's uh, campaign, he does have a Just Giving page. He's out there actually assisting refugees, and we'll put the link to that in the um, show notes below and in the chat. Please help if you've got a few pennies spare. So moving on to the final part of the show, uh, a big warm welcome back to Live a Little to our very own, the brilliant Victoria Houston, Head of Regulatory Affairs here at the IA. Victoria, thanks for joining us. So um, we're calling this section Power to the People, because uh, some of this is about power and energy. There's war in Europe, uh, at least in Ukraine, let's hope it doesn't spread. And this is having a real impact on domestic policy here. So I'm now going to just turn totally to the UK. Uh, Nigel Farage, the kind of grim reaper of the Conservative Party, <laughs> right? Every time he pops up with an idea, you know the Tories are in trouble or have gone off reservation. He and his colleague Richard Tice are now launching a campaign for a referendum on net zero. Uh, the net zero commitment was passed in the... Uh, fag end of Theresa May's government. Actually, most of Theresa May's government was a fag end in the last few days of <laughs> Theresa May's government. Uh, and Farage's claim is that this is somewhat like Brexit. Uh, it's a huge decision that was made in haste um, uh, by a political elite without public consultation of any real significance. All of the major political parties, I'm not sure if it's all of them in the House of Commons, I don't exactly know the position of the Democratic Unionist Party, for example, but all of the major Britain-wide parties seem to have exactly the same policy on this, which was also true, of course, basically of membership of the European Union. Victoria, what's your take? We've got to keep deciding more and more things by the mechanism of referendum, as Tyson Farage argued. 
No, I think uh, for once I'm not on Nigel's side on this. Um, I I am definitely on his side in in terms of you know the net zero target is um, illogical. It's it is undemocratic. It was rushed through by way of a statutory instrument with about an hour's debate in the House of Commons. Um, it's pretty clear. In fact, it was clear at the time to anyone who's paying attention. But MPs were rather blinded by the need to see really green, and Theresa May wanted her legacy. Um, so yes, all of those things are definitely um, defects in in the policy. But I just I can't see how a referendum could even be designed. I mean, what would the question be? Um, Do you wish to repeal the Carbon Net Zero Act? Yes or no? Right, but then they could just bring in another one. Sure. And but that was the or, same with the Brexit perhaps, referendum, right? We could have voted to leave, and Parliament could have could have voted to reverse that and remain. Right, but we do still need an energy policy. And in the current constitution of the, um, you know, of Parliament, they will, there are too many knock-on effects. Now, I know you could say the same thing about Brexit as well, but just imagine we, we repeal the Climate Change Act, which I definitely think we actually should do. You just don't think the referendum I is the mechanism? I just don't think a referendum is the right way to do it, because Parliament would have to work through all of these um, resulting effects you know should we uh, should we also repeal the fracking moratorium yes definitely should we be re restoring the storage capacity for for North Sea gas and so on yes absolutely um, but I'm not sure that a referendum is the best way to to, to yeah. answer those questions Patrick Victoria yeah. may be right but how boring can you imagine a referendum on this <laughs> the bands would be amazing yeah it would be absolute you, you guys would love it at GB News oh, I'll tell you what we'd live for it but um, no, I mean, I think we, we actually... So it's funny you should mention GB News in this, because I think it's actually the media that have caused a lot of this net zero stuff. You look at the lines of Sky News's climate change programme every single Which day. Which absolutely nobody watches. Well, no, yeah. I, I mean, it's shocking stuff. But um, well, because there's nothing really to watch, is there? It's just a woman looking at some plastic floating around in the ocean for an hour, and then yeah. you all go <laughs> and eventually come And then early. a superimposed picture of Manhattan underwater. Absolutely. Yeah. Advert for Carlsberg and yeah. the seagrass. Yeah. 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 Um, but, but, you know, the media have kind of led us down this path, and that's kind of my point, right, which is that the net zero desire is almost like kind of sport for very comfortable people. It's like fox hunting for softies, this stuff, right? You end up in a situation where, you know, people can go... People who are relatively well-off will not, will not all massively feel the pinch, but the people who are actually worse off in society will be the ones to feel the absolute heat of this thing, for want of a better phrase. And actually, what happens if you just can't pay your bills? Well, then the government has to then step in and increase various benefits. Which systems, is going to happen. So we end up paying this, twice yeah. for this thing. Yeah. And uh, I, I don't particularly want that at all. Right. So, do you think, well, Justin? Do you think that Farage's call for a referendum, like, like Victoria, are you merely opposed to carbon net zero, or do you think it's appropriate for there to be? I mean, I think the Farage case is that this is such a monumental decision to go for carbon net zero that, however irritating that tedious hour on Sky News might mm. be, it's not just sort of tedious and woke. They are actually talking about a policy which, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of billions it. of pounds are at stake. Yep. This is not a sort of, you know, this isn't like, shall we put national insurance up 1%. This is an, a monumental generation plus long decision. Should that be put to the people well, in the vote? At the end of the day, it's a pressure movement, right? And at the moment, there's been no pushback, massively, you could argue, no pushback 
onto this net zero policy and the fact that if it is something that's going to hit ordinary people and potentially there's just about managing that Theresa May spoke yeah. about a, a, a bit if they're no longer going to be managing and that is a huge amount of people then that is the kind of thing you could argue you should be able to have a referendum on I would hope that now what this does is it forces various Conservative MPs, they have the majority at the moment, so they're the ones who really matter on this. And actually, I would argue as well, Labour MPs from working class areas, if their constituents are feeling the pinch, to actually think, where do I stand on this? For far too long, we've blindly followed this ridiculous rhetoric. They've been led around by, I would argue, you know, not always the sanest Scandinavian teenager for to, for, to produce a policy that could affect yeah. absolutely everybody. Well, hang on a minute. If Nigel Farage is endgame with this, or at least is the reality of the situation, it means that we have to consider where we stand. Our lawmakers have to consider where they stand on this and confront that and look their constituents in the eye. If they say they back a policy that's going to make them poorer, then I think that's a good thing. Emma, what's your take? Um, I, I know Nigel Farage a little bit, and I've reached the conclusion, although he's never going to be thanked for it, that he's basically a one-man safety valve in the British <laughs> Constitution. Like, pops up like a jack-in-a-box. Uh, oh, my God, Brexit might not be done. I'll set up a political party, win a national election, and that will get it over the line. What do you think of his call here, though, specifically for the referendum? Is that the way to resolve it? Or, as Patrick says, and Victoria has implied, might this just sort of filter back to the mainstream politicians and the party line of Labour, the Conservatives and others might just alter because it's no longer feasible? The rationale behind it makes sense to me. This seems to be the sort of big issue that referendums are intended for. Uh, do I think that the British people have an appetite for another referendum? No, I don't. Um, I agree with Victoria. I don't necessarily think that this is going to... I think this would actually be extremely complicated um, and is not necessarily the best way to do it. However, that said, I also agree with Victoria that it would be desirable for a lot of these things to be repealed. And I think that calling for a referendum, as you say, Nigel Farage is a sort of, a sort of uh, re release valve for the pressure in the system, mm. that he uh, will, by doing this campaign, whether he's successful in getting a referendum or not, he will pressure the government into realising the seriousness of net zero and its importance financially and otherwise um, to the British people. And I think that simply having the campaign there will put pressure on, and that is a good thing. But I don't necessarily think that a referendum is the right way to go about it. Victoria, you were touching on some of the ways we might unravel this. The, the costs of it are are both eye-watering and contested. Uh, the government predicts that to get to carbon net zero would cost about a trillion pounds. I mean, what, what's UK GDP? Two trillion or something. So it's 50% of GDP to get there. The Global Warming Policy Foundation says, uh, no, yet again, the government's underestimating about three trillion in their estimate. So you know, take, split the difference, two trillion, let's just say. I mean, it's, it's, these are just ridiculous quantums of money, hugely expensive. Um, the cost of retrofitting to get to the micro level, the UK housing stock, to provide proper insulation, according to Energy Tech, the Energy Technologies Institute, would be Two trillion alone, um, just to, and that's just on the housing stock. When is the rubber going to hit the road on this? Because I guess what Patrick and Emma have said, and what's been, um, and what Farage has said, is that a lot of people, particularly those who are on tight margins, are about to feel the pinch. 
not necessarily for reasons attached to net zero, right? Just exacerbated by green policies. I mean, the, the invasion of Ukraine isn't part of a net zero strategy. But when do you think the real cost of this kicks in? And when the rubber hits the road, do you think there's just an immediate backlash that makes this politically impossible? Lovely in contemplation, who doesn't want to save the planet? Financially catastrophic in effect. I mean, it already is kicking in. We already know that energy prices this spring when the retail energy cap goes, people's um, electricity and gas bills are going to shoot up by, you know, a thousand pounds. Uh, yeah, which for, for most families is a serious yeah. material. But do you think that's because of carbon net zero policy or just market oh, yes. movements? Right. I mean, obviously, um, you know, a huge proportion of people's bills are made up of green levies and, and so on. But, you know, it's th then you have the, the question of supply and demand. And if supply of, of gas and oil is is being restricted for various geopolitical reasons, then the price of it will go up. And if we haven't done our utmost to, um, you know, use the resources that we have under our feet and under our seas, then that's going to have an impact on people's bills. Now, people are arguing about how much of an impact it could make, and is there a world, is there a global gas price or not? The US experience suggests that there isn't, and, you know, while um, while natural gas is, is pretty fungible, it's not costless to transport it, so there are definitely, definitely advantage to having um, sources available to you on, on your own doorstep and it just seems to me that the advice that the government gets from the climate change committee in particular it was already pretty clear that it was divorced from economic reality they've been very uh, protective of their figures and eventually when the global warming policy foundation managed to get uh, after a freedom of information request that that the climate change committee strongly resisted eventually got their figures and went over them and they really didn't stack up and I think that was particularly on electric vehicles and so you, you, and they, they're completely divorced from the laws of physics um, and it turns out pretty much uh, a childlike naivety about geopolitics as well um, which all should have been being baked in and analysed very very carefully by the government before committing to these targets yeah. and it, it really doesn't look like any of it was properly accounted for. Patrick I don't see how we can get there unless Parliament can successfully repeal some of the key laws of thermodynamics basically which <laughs> yeah. is that they might try to do but it's not short of that i can't see how we get there your your um viewers and listeners and um what i'm worried about is this as these bills kick in how much of it is going to be goddamn profiteering capitalist com companies are ripping me off i think the last time i looked at it and this is by memory but the uh, amount of profit on your gas bill is only about a tenth as the amount of government levies on your right. on your on your on your um, energy bill. So if you're worried about who's clipping you and creaming off the top, mm. the, you, you've got to look at the state as being ten times as bad as the profiteering companies. But do you think? As, uh, and of course, there are lots of effects here which aren't to do with environmental policy. But do you think when this pinch comes, and it's more than a pinch, it's more than a squeeze, yeah. it's pretty dramatic. Who are the utility payers going to point the finger at? The British government, Vladimir Putin, the companies, Greta Thunberg? Who's going to take the uh, rap for I, this? I think fundamentally it will be whoever it is that actually technically imposes it, right? Mm. So I think that will be uh, the main thing there for a lot of people. I think there will just be a lot of pervasive anger, really, and a lot of general anger about it all. If you are having to choose between heating and eating, as a lot of people will have to do, if you're going to have to make massive cutbacks, especially if you've got kids, for example, you know, 
on various different things, then actually you're just going to be generally quite angry. I think one of the saving graces for whoever it is that actually physically imposes this stuff is going to be that there was no re no one else really there in, po in politics who was opposing it, right? And so actually, you know, any of them would have done it. I think they've fallen victim to their own political weakness, right? We've had a situation where we allowed a load of dreadlock people to bring a capital city to a standstill for however long, right? And, and we didn't do anything about that. And so that's the standard we're at. We think, goodness me, if we decide actually that we want to revoke this now, then all of a sudden the uncooperative crusties will rock back up and we'll have to give in to them again. In reality, that lot don't care about money anyway because they're either anarchists or they don't have any of it. So it doesn't really matter. So for them, it doesn't matter. All they're rich and living is All they're rich and living is All they're rich and living Exactly. There's a very few kind of that squishy middle ground there. So I think there'll just be a general public anger. And when there is gen general public anger, just quickly, well, it does tend to push people towards the political extremes mm -hmm. as well. As we've seen throughout history, when people are absolutely skint and they're desperate, they go to one extreme or the other. And that is just bad generally. But it will be, of course, the people in the middle ground who've done it themselves. And, Emma, do you think mainstream politics is letting us down in that regard? Whichever way round it was, mm -hmm. it would. And I guess this eventually happened over Brexit. But you probably want one of the main parties to be pro-Brexit, the Conservatives ultimately were, and one of the main parties, Labour, to basically be anti. You probably want one of the main parties, pick red or blue, I don't care, to be, uh, you know, think carbon net zero is the way to go. The other one to say this is madness. There seems to be an incredible degree of consensus between oh, yes. the, you know, 640 of the 650 MPs in the House of Commons. Yeah. I completely agree. I think this is a political problem and I don't think it is limited just to issues surrounding uh, climate change, net zero. I think that we are seeing a decline in traditional British adversarial politics that it's not a case of having you know extremes it's just that we don't have a fair and this is something the GB mm. News is so good at is representing the full range of opinions on a particular subject and there are certain subjects in our um, political landscape that have become um, consensus ideas that cannot be questioned and debated and you just simply do not hear the other side of the debate when it comes to climate change because those ideas have become verboten they've become outside of that political consensus and far too hot to handle and so it's left to organizations like the global warming policy foundation to actually put out the statistics and try to raise awareness of the other side of this debate but actually there's very little political interest in yeah, that and I yeah. think that that is is one reason why we've got ourselves into this bind because right now it, in political terms it's very difficult for the government to row back from the decisions that they've made on this partly as well mm. because of the pressure that comes from Activist groups like Extinction Rebellion and um, uh, the, the guys on the motorway have completely forgotten. Uh, insulate called. prison. Insulate Britain. Yeah. Um, the insulate prison. Yeah. They're all locked up. The fact that they have been allowed to get away with forget yeah. forget all of the stuff to do with new legislation they've been allowed to break the law in pursuit of their particular objectives and I think because their objectives are worthy exactly and, and I think because they we now have a, a contingent however small it might be within society that think that their objectives are so noble that it justifies breaking the law that that puts our politicians in a, in a very difficult situation yeah, yeah. Victoria, you wanted to come in there. I, I'm, I'm interested in how we can extract ourselves from this problem. And to contradict what I just said a minute ago, I, I wonder whether it might be a consensus, if not of the political elite, at least of sensible-minded people, 
we've got to go for shale gas. Whether, whether you're a carbon net zero fan or not, uh, I would have thought you could get to almost total unity around. It's absolutely crazy with what's going on in the Ukraine and a carbon net zero target. We are due next week to concrete over the initial exploratory stuff we did. As our environment analyst Andy Mayer said the other day, this is the equivalent of blowing up a gold mine just as the gold rush happens. <laughs> it's utterly crazy. Well, I think, though, the, the very latest that I've heard on that is that maybe they're not going to concrete over the, those particular wells. They might keep them open for research purposes, which is a bit of a lifeline, so that's really good. And also, apparently, the Prime Minister just today has said that the, the fracking moratorium is under review, which mm -hmm. contradicts even what... Um, the base secretary, Kwasi Kwarteng, said only yesterday. So this feels like this is quite up for grabs at the Are moment. you suggesting the government doesn't know what it's doing? Well, they're obviously <laughs> reacting in a rather dynamic uh, situation. But, you know, if... Um, is, isn't it the... Uh, um, isn't it the communists who usually say never let a good crisis go to waste? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, perhaps this will shock some people into taking a bit more of a realistic attitude mm -hmm. to energy policy. And, and speaking of crises, the next crisis, crisis it is going to be when people get those um, electricity bills in yeah. in the next yeah. couple of months. We could end up with mass non-payment. Absolutely. Um, poll tax riot style um, yeah, civil yeah, disobedience. Yeah. I, I, it's actually quite frightening and I'm not sure that everyone will just nod and say, oh, well, we're doing it to, to support Ukraine, so this is all good. Mm -hmm. uh, Emma, do you think we should go for shale? I have no idea. I, I'm quite happy to admit that I am not educated enough on the subject. I do think that we need to be looking for alternative sources, sources that are closer to home, and as, as Victoria said, um, beefing up our storage facilities. It just seems to be a no-brainer to me. There's a trillion Whether quid of shale gas under our feet, one, you know, one which we're thing, about to concrete over. One, one thing that I do think, um, f for, for years, I, I, over a decade ago, I think, was the first time I heard about this, um, that some... Um, people have been lobbying for, which is thorium, um, thorium reactors, which I, I believe, if I remember rightly, <laughs> something I read 10 years ago, um, are very, very safe nuclear reactors. They right. don't react with air. And so that can put to rest a lot of people's concerns about the possible impact of having nuclear, right. more nuclear energy. Things like that seem to me to be um, a no-brainer, regardless of your concerns around climate change. Just want to uh, go for the whole lot, nuclear shale, the whole, know what, whole you enchilada. Know what, look, I don't really care what we do what i do care about is that we don't go for skint right yeah, we cannot yeah. have a nation that is absolutely skint where people have got no money where people are choosing between you know having what kind of basmati rice they want to eat for dinner every single day of the week uh, i don't want that country i don't want to live in that country and i don't see any reason to and if we've got the capacity to not let that happen frankly you know as we've already said i burn the seagrass to the ground Martha. yeah i'm absolutely <laughs> i'm absolutely with you we might need to get our language better. I, I was speaking to a senior Conservative MP uh, earlier this week. I won't say who it was, but his name's John Redwood. And um, he, he actually suggested just stop calling it fracking yeah. and start calling it reservoir management. Right? <laughs> and and, and this, this would actually get it over the line. Patrick, Emma, Victoria, thanks very much indeed for joining us. My thanks too for, to Helen, who was with us earlier on the show. Thanks,
everybody at home who's been watching. We'll be back in a couple of weeks' time. If you've enjoyed the show, hit the thumbs up, like button, and subscribe. If you've uh, got a few pennies spare, do consider becoming an IEA online patron. Thanks to those of you who have uh, backed us at the very top tier of our uh, online patron offering. Donald Blaney, Costa Manis, James Burns, Mark Edwards, Philip Ozer, Richard Leader, Robert Appleby, and Timothy Worrell. We greatly appreciate your support. Stay safe, stay free. Over and out.